We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. The scripture for today is Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. Again, that's Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Good morning, Emmaus. It's good to see you. Um, Hey, if you're uh, uh, visiting and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are visiting and would like to get to know us a little bit better, um, get to know any any information that you might be interested in, uh, the way to do that is to text WELCOME to 816-448-8178. I'll repeat that in just a minute. Um, but that is, is basically a way to get connected uh, with us in lieu of our Connect cards that we would typically have you fill out. And so, um, once again, that number is 816 816- Four four eight eight one seven eight. So that's a way to, to get connected with us. And then the only other thing um, I want to say before we, we jump into our passage today is um, just point your attention to the fact that the um, that the order to wear masks in public spaces again uh, has has been prolonged. And so um, so just maintain this. This is our new normal until. We tell you otherwise, so uh, thank you for bearing with us on that front. And uh, with that said, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into this passage this morning. Our God and Father, thank you for providentially bringing us here to worship, to worship you, to worship you and your Son and your Spirit. You've called us here. Lord, you have invited us to praise you. You have said, seek my face, and so we respond, your face, Lord, do we seek. O Spirit of Christ, we wish to see Jesus this morning. Would you calm our minds and hearts and orient them heavenward, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Give us a clear vision of His unparalleled glory, and may we be flattened by it in awe and adoration. As we look upon him through his word, be pleased to transform us into his image from one degree of glory to another. 
We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. Well, there are few passages in the entire Bible that give so vivid a exalting description of Christ's glory as today's passage. Here we are confronted with the majesty of Jesus. Now, of course, all Scripture radiates with the glory of Christ, but there are some passages that confront you in a special way with the high concentration of Christ's undiluted, unfiltered, high-octane glory. And today's passage is one of those passages. Contemporary scholars are divided as to what to do with these first five verses, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Some contend that this is a Christian hymn that predates Colossians, so it would have been a song that early Christians sang in praise of Christ. Some also say that this is just an exceptional piece of poetic prose that Paul pins for this purpose, and others place it somewhere in the middle, that this is a a, uh, predating hymn about Christ's glory that Paul takes and refashions for his purposes here in Colossians. Now, regardless of how you answer that question, the thing that all faithful Christians have agreed upon throughout the centuries is that the high Christology that we find in this passage is intended to inspire endless worship of Christ. That's what it's here for. It's here to inspire worship. And this is exactly what Paul intends with this section. Now, remember the context of this book to the Colossians. The believers in Colossae are being wooed away from pure devotion to Christ by plausible arguments, chapter 2, verse 4 tells us, and by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, chapter 2, verse 8 says. So Paul's purpose in this passage is to outshine the rival philosophies with dazzling brilliance of Christ. He's trying to outshine these rival philosophies with the dazzling brilliance of Christ, of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, chapter 2, verse 3 tells us. This is what Paul's doing with our passage today. He is magnifying the beauty of Jesus in order to inspire pure devotion Now, because this is the case, you may be surprised by the lack of application points made in this sermon. This is probably the most explicitly theological sermon I've ever preached. And so we're going to cast all of our bets on the sufficiency of Christ's glory this morning. Now, many of you have come into this place with many different needs and burdens and griefs, and there are countless things that I could try to say to address all of your individual problems, and yet in today's passage, Paul simply revels in the beauty of Christ, and we believe that it's no accident that, Paul ha- that, that, that we have arrived here at this passage today. So you come in with any number of needs But we believe that God has providentially placed you here in this church today with us preaching through this passage of Scripture today 
which means that whatever else you need, your highest need is an eye full of the glory of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do today. The invitation is for you with your exhaustion and troubles and victories and yearnings. The invitation is for you to come into the presence of Christ and let His brightness of glory cascade on you. Just warm you to be dwarfed by His bigness. So behold Christ this morning. Behold His supremacy as God revealed. Behold His supremacy as Creator. And behold His supremacy as Redeemer. And kids, may us kids, let me just say welcome again. We are so glad that you're here. And, and I'll just tell you the point of this sermon right here at the very beginning, kids. So when your parents ask you in the car, this is how you impress them. When they say, what was the sermon about? You tell them, Jesus is the best and Jesus is the boss. Okay? That's the point of today's sermon. Jesus is the best and Jesus is the boss. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the image of the invisible God, says Paul of Christ. Now everything that, that will follow in this passage is an elaboration on and an extrapolation from that central truth, that Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? Well, first of all, we can't understand what it means for Christ to be the image of the invisible God until we understand what it means for God to be invisible. Now, more is intended here than simply the idea that you can't see Him with your eyes. More is intended here than, than the idea that your eyeballs cannot register God's essence because His essence transcends what you can possibly see with your physical eyes, though that is included. The idea of God's invisibility includes more than that. You see, all throughout Scriptures, sight is used as a metaphor to speak more broadly of human understanding as a whole. So it's not simply that our eyes aren't fit to behold God's essence is that no part of us as creatures are fit to comprehend the essence of God. He is incomprehensible. We cannot comprehend Him. We, we cannot wrap our arms around Him. He's too much. And this is because God is a being unlike us. It's not simply that He's, he's like us, just older and bigger and stronger and wiser. That's not the point. He is a different kind of being. You see, every being that exists belongs to one of two categories. You have the creator, and then you have the creature. 
And only one being exists on this side of the creator-creature divide, and that is God himself. Everything else that exists, exists on the other side of that chasm. You have God, the creator, and then everything else. So on the creator's side, there is God, who is infinite. He is boundless. You cannot put a limit to him. He cannot be fathomed. There is no bottom to his depth. He is unchangeable. He is eternal. And then we, as temporal, bound, finite, limited, constantly changing creatures, do not have the resources to understand his nature. We cannot. It's not just that if we had enough time, we could eventually figure God out. No, we cannot. Our nature precludes us from comprehending God's essence. In His nature, He is invisible to our nature. And this means that Christ, being the image of the invisible God, is the greatest news we could ever hope for. You see, Christ is God made visible. Christ is the invisible God made visible. He condescends from His infinitude so that we can understand Him. Now implied here is something truly significant about Christ's divine nature. Think about this. How could He reveal the divine nature truly if He Himself were not truly divine? If the Son of God does not share the same essence with the Father, if He were created by the Father, as was Maintained and has a nature like the Father's but different, which is maintained by the ancient heresy of Arianism, and it's continued, continually maintained by the heresies of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. If that's true, if the Son of God was created by the Father, has a nature like the Father but different, He could not reveal the invisible God to us. Because the invisible God has an incomprehensible nature. So if He doesn't share that... He cannot reveal God to us. God's incomprehensibility means that if the chasm of the creator-creature divide is going to be crossed, it has to come from the creator side. Only he who is invisible can make himself visible. If Christ does not exist on that side of the creator-creature divide, he cannot make the invisible God known. He's just one more creature among creatures. But if he shares the essence, the same essence as the Father and the Spirit, the essence that only one being has, that is the Creator, if he exists firmly on the Creator's side of the Creator-creature divide, then he can truly reveal God to us. This is why John can say of Christ, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God makes God known. Or why the author of Hebrews can say of Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. This is why the 4th century Christian creed from Nicaea describes the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. It says that Christ is the only begotten, Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time. Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence with the Father, through whom 
all things came into being. In revealing the divine nature to us, Christ was accommodating His infinite nature to serve our finite nature. And He could not accommodate His infinite nature if He were not, in fact, infinite. So we should worship Him. We should worship Him as supreme because He is God made visible. When you meet Christ, you meet the invisible God. When you hear Christ's heart towards you, you hear God's heart. When you see what Christ loves and hates, you are seeing the compassion and wrath of God. So kids, let me try to sum this point up for you. When the Bible tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it's telling us that if you want to know God, you need to get to know Jesus. You need to get to know Jesus because Jesus is God in human form. He became man so that you and I could know him and love him and worship him. Kids, it's kind of like when your parents need to get your attention and so they, they, they don't want to stand up and talk to you with you being low and them being high so they get down sort of on their knees so that their eyes are looking right at your eyes. It's because they want you to understand them. They want you to see their face. That's kind of like what Jesus did when he became man. He was stooping down to us so that we can see him clearly. Now, why does all of this matter? We, we just went deep into some high-flying theology about the eternal Son of God who's, who's eternally begotten, sharing the same essence with the Father, revealing the Father's essence to us. Why does all of this matter? It matters because, this is so important, it matters because if Christ is not divine, our worship of Him is blasphemous. We do this every week. We get together every week and we worship Jesus. It is a wicked evil to worship a creature. There's nothing more heinous. And all of us here on this side of the creator-creature divide have an obligation to worship our Creator. We exist as creatures and we're obligated to worship the Creator and only the Creator. And if Christ does not fit that bill, then what we are doing here week after week after week is a horrifying blasphemy. There's nothing on this planet more despicable than creature worship, which is what we would be doing if Christ were not divine. But Christ is supreme as God revealed, as the invisible God made visible. So marvel at the kindness of God and the incarnation, brothers and sisters. Our triune God has not left us to fend for ourselves, trying to figure out what He's like or how to worship Him. He has not stood off aloof in His incomprehensibility, leaving us to despair and aimless ignorance. Although we cannot understand Him entirely, comprehensively, we can understand Him truly because He has revealed Himself to us in the image of the invisible God. In coming to Christ, we come to God in worship and adoration. And we can do this with absolute confidence that we're not worshiping an idol. We're worshiping God. I love how John Calvin summarizes this verse. He says, the sum is this. That God in Himself, that is in His naked majesty, is invisible. 
And that not to the eyes of the body merely, but also to the understandings of men. And that He is revealed to us in Christ alone, that we may behold Him as in a mirror. For in Christ He shows us His righteousness, goodness, wisdom, power, in short, His entire self. We must therefore beware of seeking Him elsewhere for everything that would set itself off as a representation of God apart from Christ will be an idol. Christ is supreme as God revealed. The supremacy of Christ as God revealed. Second point is this. The supremacy of Christ as Creator. Now if by chance Paul's readers are not convinced by Christ's divinity by the title of being the image of the invisible God, he clenches his point here. You see, Christ's divinity, his divine nature, is made manifest in this passage not only by what he is, that is, he's the image of the invisible God, but also by what he does. He creates everything. We see here in this passage Christ doing things that only God does. That is, creating everything. So Paul calls him here in this verse, uh, he says, he calls him the firstborn of all creation. Now, some heretical teachings throughout the centuries has taken this to mean that Christ is the first created thing. Firstborn of all creation, the first created thing. The Father creates Jesus first and then creates everything else. But if that's what Paul is intending with this phrase, firstborn of all creation, he would be directly contradicting himself in the very next verse. Verse 16 says, For by Him all things, not everything else beside Him, it says, by Him all things were created. All things here places Christ firmly on the Creator side of the Creator-creature divide. He can't be both the first created thing and the Creator of all things. Which means that firstborn of all creation does not signify chronology. That is, Christ is created first and then everything else. That's not what's intended with this phrase, firstborn of all creation. Rather, it signifies position and authority. Christ is the Lord over all creation. He's firstborn over creation. It's His. He has birthrights to it. It is His. It's His creation. He made it. He's Lord over creation. And this point becomes clear as we continue to read on. It says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And with these very few brief phrases, Paul just attributed everything that exists to the creative agency of Jesus Christ. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible is an exhaustive description. Nothing that exists fits outside of those categories. So everything from the biggest burning stars in the, in the, at the edge of the universe to the most minuscule, seemingly meaningless things created on earth are created by Christ. The burning and exploding stars at the far reaches of the universe where, where quantum physicists tell us that time and space do really weird things. That's all created by Jesus. The countless little narratives of ant civilizations that, that grow and, and create and, and carry and move and fight and then tragically end when you and your family decide to go on a walk outside. All those narratives 
written by Jesus Christ. Everything that exists, exists by virtue of His creative agency. And even more than that, Paul says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. What's he talking about here? Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Well, it's not at all inappropriate for us to attribute the position of earthly thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities to the sovereign placement of Christ. He is sovereign over earthly leaders, over earthly thrones and dominions. But earthly human rulers are not the authorities that Paul is primarily talking about here in this passage. The primary category that Paul has in mind here are spiritual forces, angelic and demonic forces. Now we know this because Paul brings them up again in the very next chapter when he says that they are disarmed and put to shame when Christ triumphed over them in His crucifixion. Paul also uses identical language in Ephesians chapter 6 where he explicitly says that these rulers and authorities are, quote, cosmic powers over the present darkness and, quote, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul is talking about spiritual categories, demonic and angelic forces. Why does he mention them? Well, Paul goes out of his way to mention this angelic category in the created order because one of the features of this strange new philosophy that had come into the Colossian church was worship of angels. Chapter 2, verse 18 says. So here in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul is reminding the Colossians that the quote, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities are included in the all things that were created through Christ and for Christ. In other words, he's saying to the Colossians, now why on earth would you want to go and worship angels when you could be worshiping Christ? He's the one who made the angels. He's the one for whom the angels exist. Why would you worship the creature when you could be worshiping the Creator. This is why whenever God's angels are worshipped in Scripture, the worshiper is met with a swift rebuke. Angels are creatures who exist like us for Christ. They exist to glorify Him. Guys, even let this blow your mind. Even Satan and demonic dark forces of evil exist for the glory of Christ. How is that possible? How can they exist to glorify Christ. Well, even evil serves to glorify the good when the goodness crushes it. That's what the dark rulers and authorities exist for. It all exists to glorify Him. That's why He, the Word made flesh, the spoken of God, that's why He spoke the cosmos into existence out of nothing. Jesus brought everything out of nothing for His own glory. This is what day and night are calling out according to Psalm 19. Everything that exists, exists to call attention to the praise and glory of Christ. That's why He made everything. And that's why He continues to maintain everything. Yes, brothers and sisters, not only did Christ create all things, He sustains all things. Did you see that? In verse 17, He is before all things. And in Him, 
all things hold together. <laughs> your heart, friends, your heart continues to bump, pump blood throughout your entire body right now because Jesus is telling it to do so. He's telling it to do so. The chair that you're sitting on continues to hold your weight because Jesus is commanding those atoms to hold together and they obey. He's keeping the molecules of, of the wood in this gorgeous pulpit together. He's making sure that your eyelids continue to blink and moisturize your eyeballs. And he keeps the molecular structure of your tears together to make sure that your blinking is effective. And on and on and on we can go. This meticulous work of keeping the universe together is acted out by none other than Jesus Christ. The early church father, John Chrysostom, puts it like this. Not only did he himself bring them out of nothing into being, but he himself sustains them now so that were they dissevered from his providence, they were at once undone and destroyed. What's he saying? He's saying if Jesus stops speaking, the universe falls apart. It's not accidental. It's not mindless mechanical. Jesus is commanding the universe to work the way that it does even right now. But guys, would we all be amazed by Christ's creative agency? Kids, let me summarize this point for you as well. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. Jesus deserves our worship for many reasons, and one of those reasons is that Jesus made everything. Kids, he made the stars, he made the sun and the moon, he made the trees, he made the grass and the bugs, and he made you. He made you. Jesus built you in your mommy's tummy, and he's keeping you together now, and he does all of this for his glory, and so we should worship him. Christ is supreme as the creator. He's also supreme, point number three, as redeemer. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This same this same Lord who stands as the firstborn over creation, the firstborn of creation, the authoritative, creating and sustaining Lord of creation, this same one has entered into his creation. He who is the firstborn of creation became the head of the church by being the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, says Paul, he might be preeminent. He's the boss, he's the best. What does this mean? Here we see the supremacy of Christ as the one and only Redeemer. He has situated himself as the head of the church by coming for her with his life and death and resurrection and ascension. Recall what we spoke of last week. Christ entered into the domain of darkness so that through him, the Father could transfer us from the domain of darkness into his kingdom. How does he do that? We enter into his kingdom through the work of the gospel. So when Christ comes to die for us, he pays for our entry into the kingdom. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. And when he is resurrected from the dead, he blazes a trail out of the domain of darkness 
with us. He takes us with us. Resurrection opens the gates for Christ's kingdom. And we who cling to him by faith, we who are his body, follow him through resurrection. In other words, he is the firstborn from the dead, but not the last. We will follow him. He's the firstborn from the dead, but not the last. And Paul makes this point clear and personal in verses 21 and 22. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, you who were subjects in the domain of darkness, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And here Paul is signaling this beautiful doctrine of union with Christ, which he'll go into in much more detail in the next chapter. But what we can say right now is this. This doctrine teaches us that when we come to Christ by faith, the Spirit of God unites us to Him such that His life is counted as our life and His death is counted as our death and His resurrection is counted as and secures our resurrection. And this is how His body of flesh by His death can be the means of our reconciliation. In His death, we die the death that we deserve as subjects of the domain of darkness. But in His resurrection, we are made new as citizens in His kingdom. In His death, we die the death that we deserve. But in His resurrection, we are made new. He intends with His reconciling work to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him and He will get what He intends to do. That's what he intends for us. He intends to present us before himself as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We're on our way right now and he will complete that work. But brothers and sisters, this, it gets so much better than this because the personal reality that Paul applies to the Colossians here when he says, you who were once alienated is actually a part of something much more cosmic. It's a part of something bigger. Our individual salvation is a part of something much bigger. Verse 20, it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In other words, when Christ was resurrected from the dead, he was not simply signaling the resurrection of believers who would follow him, he was also signaling the resurrection of the universe, the resurrection of the cosmos. You see, when we become Christians, we enter into a new cosmic order. Our future resurrection will be complemented. Our future bodily resurrection will be com complemented with a resurrection of the new heavens and the new earth. One New Testament scholar puts it like this. This, that is... Christ reconciling all things, whether on earth or in heaven, this does not indicate universal salvation, but that the consummation of Christ will bring about a harmony of all things in the new eternal creation after decisively judging evil and putting it in its judicial place. Thus, the idea of reconciliation in this passage is a reference to the restoration of all things. Christ 
in saving sinners right now is in the process of restoring all things to himself. Thus, the supremacy of Christ as Redeemer speaks to his redemption of individuals, and this is glorious, but it also speaks to his redemption of the whole created order. Brothers and sisters, who is greater than he? Who is more glorious than Christ? Who is more deserving of our undivided worship? Now, in light of everything we've seen so far, verse 23 might come as a surprise. So verse 22, he says, He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What are we to make of this if? What are we to make of this if indeed you continue in the faith? You might have expected, given the assurance that Paul has boasted in all throughout this chapter, that he would say something like, since indeed you continue in the faith. But he doesn't say that. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. And this is a true conditional. It's a true conditional statement. He's not, he's not just yanking our chain here. The implication is that if you don't continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, he hasn't reconciled you into his body of flesh by his death. So is Paul undermining the assurance that he's just offered the Christians and Colossians? Is he giving them all this assurance of their salvation and then taking it back? Just kidding. Is that what Paul's doing right now? Does he invite us to say, well, I hope I've been transferred from the domain of darkness I hope I've been reconciled in the body of flesh by his death, but ultimately I can't know. Is that what Paul wants for us? Absolutely not. You see, this is a true conditional statement, but the point of emphasis is not on the strength of our faith. The point of emphasis is on the exclusivity of Christ. The point of emphasis is on the exclusivity and sufficiency of Christ as the object of our faith. He's saying, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, stable and steadfastly clinging to this Christ, then he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. But if you stray from this Christ, if you stray from him, you stray from reconciliation because no reconciliation is offered apart from him. No reconciliation exists apart from him. This is so important for us to emphasize because we can sometimes talk ourselves into inaction on account of our theology. A perversion of our theology can, can talk us into inaction. So we can say something like, hey, if I'm elect, I don't have to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If I'm elect, God does all the work for me. And our response ought to be, that's not how Christians talk. That's not how Christians think. If we're thinking that way, we're not thinking Christianly. Christians don't think that security in Christ invites laziness and inaction. Nor should Christians on the other side think that the call to continue in the faith is therefore an invitation to doubt the sufficiency of God's saving grace. Rather, Christians heartily take up the invitation to continue in the faith 
because they have come to adore the object of their faith. It's what they want to do. We're begging Paul by the end of this by the end of this description of Christ, we're begging him to urge us to continue in the faith. Right? This is why Paul spends all of this time exhausting his vocabulary to adorn Christ with beautiful language before he ever gets to this conditional if. He doesn't lead with this conditional if. He starts off with a vivid description of Christ's worthiness. And it's because he's painted a picture of Christ's beauty that is so grand that to reject him for Christless philosophy would be the height of foolishness. That's the point. That is the point. The only fitting response to a Christ this beautiful and this supreme is continued faith. There is no reconciliation outside of him. And so Paul, here's what Paul's doing. Paul, aware of the Colossians' temptation to drift from Christ, puts Christ on full display. He shows how beautiful and how worthy Christ is. He puts him on full display. And then he says to the Colossians, this is what you would be forsaking if you continue along this trajectory of Christless philosophy. This is what you'd be turning your back on. Don't be so foolish. You really want to trade the glories of Christ for these foolish philosophies? Why would you do that? Don't do that. It's a bad bet. And Christians recognize that it's a bad bet. And so the invitation for believers is to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, to continue to behold and adore this Christ. Brothers and sisters, when we read that kind of description of Jesus, doesn't it invite worship? We want to worship. And so that's what Paul is inviting us to do. And the invitation to non-believers is the same. The invitation is for them to see this glorious Savior and heed His invitation to be a part of His all things that He is reconciling to Himself. To get in on this universe restoration process that He has begun and continues to do in saving sinners. Outside of Him, non-believer, there is nothing worth mentioning. But in Him, there is the restoration of all things. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.